Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast, as you know, that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders in the world. Before we jump into this week's episode, I want to make one ask. I love hearing from you. You tell me you love these podcasts. You tell me you share them with all sorts of people. It's really meaningful to me that if you like this show, please take a moment and rate this podcast on iTunes. It really matters. Go to the podcast app on your mobile device, search Real Leaders, go to the reviews tab and rate the show. And no, I can't help that it's a little bit kludgy. Today, we are joined by a really exciting guest. I'm happy to have Wendy Lee, the CEO of Centrifuge, here with us. Hi, Wendy. Hello. Good morning. It's great to see you. So, Wendy, the way we start every Real Leaders episode is we ask our guests to give us their three-minute life story. Usually, I say it's two minutes, but for you, I want to go to all the way to three minutes. Go. Okay, girl with deep southern roots decided early that she wanted to be independent. My goal was to be independent, not to be an entrepreneur. And to get to independence, I needed some experience. So I worked for some large companies. And after a couple of turns at that crank, it was clear to me I wasn't well suited for that environment. A lot of process a lot of discussion, a lot of behaving within standard protocol. So early in my life, at at 29 actually, I decided to jump out of that life and experience small business. And from that, learned how perfect that was for me. The learning, the global experience I was able to get, and just being a free spirit within the bounds of still having to accomplish objectives and demonstrate competency, all the things you have to do as a professional. So it was really at 29 when I spread my wings and saw what I was capable of. And from that, there was no turning back. I learned technology. In fact, technology was the first market I served with capability. Then I did the world with that capability with high tech as my client. And from there, I started understanding entrepreneurship, frankly. My boss was a bootstrapped entrepreneur. I worked for him. There were no benefits. There was no 401k. It was just he and his wife and myself delivering magnificent capability to these large companies. And after seven years at that, basically getting my groove on as a young Southern woman with her first passport, first time traveling, I said, you know, this is good, but I think better could even be my own thing, meaning my own company. I had no idea what that meant. I remember taking a class at SMU to teach me. And the rest really is history. I popped out of that environment, that company, not as gracefully as I could have, frankly, but we parted ways. I fell in love, went to Europe, and started working for another company, then my own. And from that experience, learned what it was like to be in the dark night of the soul as an entrepreneur. Uh, This was not a venture-backed business. Nonetheless, everything was on the line. 
including the satisfaction of very large customers like IBM and HP and Cisco and SAP and Oracle, the largest tech companies in the world. So if you did not deliver, you were not continued as a provider of that service. At the end of the day, I never really thought of technology being a driver of anything as a young woman. I never thought about being an entrepreneur as a young woman. I was driven to achieve the potential I knew I had as a human being and then as a professional, and I knew I wanted to be independent. And I will say that all strengths can become your weaknesses. We know that fully. And now in my early 60s, I can say mostly those strengths have served me well, and then in a few cases personally they have not. But that is my three-minute review of history on the professional side. Got it. Got it. So there's plenty to dig into there. But before we do that, I just want to get clear with folks who might not know you as well that two years ago or two plus years ago, you moved in some ways away from operating roles in fast-growing startups to this role at Centrifuge. Can you just talk a little bit about what Centrifuge is and what attracted you to that yeah. role? Because it might have been unpredictable for people who pay attention to your career. Yeah, it, uh, thanks for even asking that question. First of all, I was leading, I invested in Get Satisfaction and was leading that company for three, three and a half years. Fast growth, raised a lot of money, and came to a point where I really felt, we all felt, not just me, that it needed a new leader. It was at that stage in its life cycle, it needed a new leader. And and I prepared for a long time for that that change. So I was really open to whatever came next. I wasn't at a stage in my life where I needed to plan that so much. It's not that I didn't think about it, but I didn't go to a session to plan it. You know, I believe in serendipity. Many of us do in this industry. And I stayed open to whatever was coming up. And that was my 60th birthday. And I only mention that because that's a a pretty important milestone. Maybe all birthdays are, but for me, this one was especially important, or that one. So I had developed a unique attachment to Cincinnati because of Procter & Gamble. At Get Satisfaction, P&G was our largest customer. Therefore, I went there on a regular basis, both as a CEO and as the VP of sales, so to speak. And um, I would take a red eye in from San Francisco. I'd stay at a very cool hotel called 21C. I'd go to P&G and come back here, which was home in San Francisco. And so while there, you know, I got the vibe a little bit, and I got to know some of the folks in the startup community and many folks inside P&G. And so I just knew enough to be dangerous. And what I saw about that place and that time was a lot of potential. And it reminded me a tad bit of when I lived in Boulder in 2000 and whatever year that was, three or four or five, I even forget. Right. Um, But not enough for me to act on it, right? It was just that. It was just a thought. I do know how to manifest things, but it was just that thought. So I came back and and then the opportunity was put on the table from then the the CEO of P&G, Bob McDonald, who now runs the VA administration for Obama. But when it came up, I'm like, no, that's not it. And then 
I let that settle a bit, which you get to a certain age and you can. You don't feel so needy of reacting and responding because if it's right, they will wait and you will too. So that's how it happened. I mean, it was completely, there was an opening. It would be like a board seat. You know, there was an opening, someone mentioned your name and then I went there several times to meet them. I had a chance to meet Steve Case. I got to meet the community. I thought, this is interesting. Now, why was it interesting? That's how it happened. The why is different. So it goes back to something I'm confident I was raised with, that over these many decades now, that I, it's central to my being. And that is, I'm addicted to the potential of things including myself, the potential of myself as a human being, the potential of businesses, like the one I've, I fall in love with many businesses, but one I fell in love with early was Get Satisfaction, without really understanding all that that meant. You know, I fell in love with the potential of what it held for consumers more so than businesses, more so for consumers than investors, <laughs> I felt I fell in love with that potential. I fell in love with the potential of Cincinnati relative to an economy that could exist there like I saw created here in Boulder. So it was really the why was the potential. Not understanding, not so unlike get satisfaction. I didn't really understand the details of it, right? I saw the whole of it. And I thought, oh, that is so interesting. Let me jump into that and work on the detail of how that could then become that which it deserves to be, which is a large platform for consumers to express themselves about products and services they care about, or a community that's surrounded by traditional business that so is prepared for the next generation of business leaders. That's why. Okay. As I listen to you talk about your history and some of your tendencies, so the notion that behaving wasn't really your skill set in a large company, and that when you found small business and startups, you were able to be more of a free spirit, which feels more like an essence quality of you. What I notice about you going into a rather traditional or more old line with many more big companies, a community like Cincinnati and injecting your spirit into it. I've heard you talk about how you need to be connected to the government. You need to be connected to big co-executives. You need to be connected to the startup community. You need to deal with real estate issues and social and economic issues in this community. To me, your role sounds even harder vis-a-vis -vis behaving than it would be to work in a large company. So have you changed or am I misreading the demands of the role? Excellent question. Um, in that way, I won't say it's harder. I think when I was 30, working for General Foods, and then a little later for Allstate Insurance Company, owned by Sears, I think my tolerance for all of this was different, right? I mean, at 30 years later, it's not just that I'm wiser. I just understand the needs that all these different entities have. And I do have unique ability to align them. That's 
right? That gives you pleasure. That's really it. Really does. It it gives me pleasure. So what does that mean? I like the complexity of what we call an ecosystem. I mean, honestly, I don't really know what that means, except (laughs) it's a bunch of piece parts that need to get connected and then become integrated. So they lift the whole, I mean, who knows if that's the real definition, but I do enjoy that. So in Cincinnati specifically, like it gets satisfaction, by the way, right? There were lots of different entities I don't mean just in the software, but I mean lots of different organizations that had to come together to accomplish the mission of having a tech-based economy, right? You've got to have the right talent from universities. You have to have the right incentives from the government, both state and local, right? You have to have the right inventory and quality and motion around startups themselves, right, to keep them excited and there (laughs) to build there. But you have to have the right investors. So it is kind of weird how perfect it was for me at this time in my life. That really makes sense. I see the parallels. But the time, I remember you saying that you had meetings with clergy in Mm -hmm. Cincinnati, and Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, this is a broad-reaching job Mm -hmm. that you're doing, or Mm -hmm. you're making it that way. I mean, I think a different person in that role might not take on as much as you've taken on, might not do Techstars FounderCon in Cincinnati. Well, now this is interesting. Centrifuge as an entity, as a public-private partnership, was established to drive this, this new economy. So let's just put that on the table. To do that, there needed to be a strategy that was very inclusive of all these entities. And frankly, as I can look back on it over the last two years, all the individual entities were doing just fine. Right. There was a seed investor. There were angel groups. There are a bunch of accelerators. Uh, The brand read very high profile. Others not so, but doing good work. But what wasn't there? And this is the story, at least for me. What wasn't there was energy to activate the entropy, right? The down to the parochial, well, we're the best accelerator. Well, we're the best, you know, seed investor. There wasn't the energy or an organization that was kind of soft circling all the points in the constellation. That's what Startup Sensi did. And that's why we kind of harnessed that hashtag to create the, the tent under which or over which, I guess is a better way to say it, all these entities could be. And that's been the success story. And that's what attracted uh, Techstars FounderCon. Not so much Centrifuge, right? That's an operating business with a lot of moving parts, very complex parts like a fund. But if you're going to go do community development work, right? If you're going to build an economy, you have to understand all the points of the economy, right? And so... In a place like Cincinnati, where religious institutions are a non-trivial part, then you got to understand the part they play. Got it. When you've lived in San Francisco, you've lived in Boulder, you've lived overseas, what has living in Cincinnati for two-plus years taught you about yourself? Oh, so much. That's my favorite question of all. Do you know, I have not ever really found a community. And while in Boulder, uh, 
several years ago, over a decade now. I think the intention was for this to be a home and a community. It didn't turn out that way, which wasn't a professional imperfection of it. It was a personal situation that I went through. Um, And so therefore, it didn't become my community, at least at that time. So the learnings about being in the Midwest and being in Cincinnati around community have been significant. Here's why. These people, this, my peeps in the greater Cincinnati region, which, by the way, includes northern Kentucky and Indiana. So this is not the city of Cincinnati. It's more far-reaching than that, which is kind of cool, right? Because it's a lot of different subcultures. These people love where they live, Hmm. right? They love their culture. They, They fight to save it. Their architecture, uh, their symphony, which is in the top five in the U.S., their ballet, which is magnificent, their opera, their Shakespeare. So they have this desire to make the community culturally enriched in that way. Now, I'm not sophisticated when it comes to opera and symphony and all that, but I'm amazed by the investments they make to keep the quality of that dimension of their community high. I mean, it's really stunning. There's that. And there's all the different elements of the community, and they're so close, even as they're so different. Remember, we are a swing state like Colorado. Yeah. So we're red and blue. We're rich and poor. We are black and white right? We are small business and big business, and now we are startup business. So there's something about that Ohio Valley that really supports the diversity of all these things. And then, though, there's also something about it that kind of gets stuck Hmm. in its special juices. Hmm. It's so safe and secure, Hmm. right? And, and sophisticated in its very defined way that it's like people don't even want to look outside in some ways. And wh- the only thing I've done that I think is special for them is I've just opened up the windows to let the air come in more often, right. especially as it relates to the kind of work you and I do, which is business building from scratch work, which is venture back startup work. Those are some of the things you've learned by being there. Mm -hmm. Have you learned anything about yourself that was unexpected by being put in a situation where you live somewhere new in the Midwest? Well, what I've learned about myself is that I'm just a complicated chick (laughs) and that I can be like them. Huh? Right. I, I, and, and, and like, what does that mean? Well, there's some traditional business stuff that I get to do a lot. I have to do a lot. I kind of enjoy that. I didn't as a 30-year-old, as a 25-year-old. I'll put up on my fancy outfit, you know, my expensive suit, my high heels, and I'll go down to our Queen City Club. And remember, I'm their age. There's a lot of global executive power there. There's a lot of political power there. There are a lot of healthcare executives there. I can go be them, but I'm not them. So what I've learned is I can be them, but then I get lonesome for this other part of me that is so casual and is not traditional. So 
it's complicated because I feel close to them in that way, and then I feel separate from them, and then I get lonesome, not because of anything they've done, but just because of this other part of me that doesn't get nurtured when I'm there as much. And you said casual is one of the words you used to describe that other part of you. It's just the free spirit, right? That's not really... It's like putting on face paint and going on up to a Halloween party, right? You're, you know how to do it and you want to do it because it's part of your job. But then at this stage in my life, um, I really need to work on the potential of me. And that the big co-part of me is very well developed uh-huh. and has been reconnected being there. And so now there's another part that... Um, is a little freer and doesn't want to be as um, in that always-on volume as I have to be on. You talk about being from the South, and I actually, the most important person in my life was my grandmother, who uh, grew up in Mobile, Alabama. She was born in 1907. She ended up going to college in the Northeast. I mean, there are news articles in the Mobile paper about her drive, her, her, right? her drive down the roads, not yeah. her drive personally, but probably she had both, uh, t- to go to Mobile. And she was married five times and all five husbands died, which which means, you know, there wasn't a six because that was pretty risky but for the man. But... Um, <laughs> We always joke that she just had this incredible charm, and part of her getting married, she lost the love of her life when her children were very young. She was very pragmatic about it. She was a woman. It was the you know early 40s, and she needed to have someone to support her family. But her charm and her ability to engage other people and her training to me about asking good questions and drawing other people out actually is even, I've never thought about it, but it's present in this podcast. It's why I love this podcast so much. You talk on your LinkedIn profile about being from the South. And I just wonder, what have you taken? What's still in your essence that comes from the South? Grit, right? Um, But also in, in the South... Uh, in Mississippi, and that's deep south, right? Alabama is too, by the way. So I, I can I was relate say, to Alabama, you, not Alabama New York. <laughs> Mississippi. We got it going on there, right? In deep south, you know the stories, hmm. right? Stories that come either from observing, not stories that were told to you so much, but stories that you observed while at church or at school or in my case, a cocktail party, watching my grandmother or my grandfather interact with other coaches from the SEC, (laughs) right? Um, I was the oldest grandchild, and I was very observant. And my mother was very young, very young. She had me when she was 17. And so I had a lot of moms because of that. But I think... The, the South, for me, was about observing and converting those observances and those interactions into stories that could fuel me and fuel my own ambition, mm-hmm. right? I always uh, had big 
ideas about who I should be. Did right? that come from? Did that come from someone? Do you think? Or? You know, it's a good question. I I don't know. I mean, both of my grandmothers were very um, attractive and smart and interesting and. Um, well traveled, and you know they were they were interesting. And then my mom, you know, was a Buddhist or still is, and a and well trained and well educated and unusual, right? So I don't know where it came from. My guess is, you know, it, it came from my own soul. I don't know that it came from them. I think they influenced that which, you know, came into them and now I am who I am, but I've never I don't feel like I'm from anywhere, yet I do have that kernel of southernness that's very special and that's why I play it out. I mean, I haven't lived in Mississippi since Good gosh, the 80s. And I don't even go back there that often, right? I don't sit on the board of Ole Miss or, um, you know, even though I've been asked to. I mean, I don't have that, go back and kind of be at that place. But it is in my um, heart and it is in my soul. And I I do feel it more than I want to be with it. Huh. Okay. That makes sense. So we're talking about family. Did you make a decision not to have children? Um, it's a good... I, I don't know that I decided not... I mean, I've been pregnant several times. I've had a couple of abortions. And it was they were very specific to that situation and that time, right? Um, so I guess in that way I chose... Right? I mean, that's a choice, right? And it wasn't like I was, you know, sick and had to do that. I mean, I made a choice. Um, I don't, and I think about that, not in a way that makes me sad, but I think about the circumstances around that decision and the, and the implication of that decision. And I think the implication is far-reaching in that in both cases, those relationships probably would have been more sustainable, personal relationships, had I not chosen to do that. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the traditional woman in me would have, have worked on that relationship in a different way right. had I birthed that child, yeah. you know? Um, but that was that. You strike me as somebody who doesn't have regret. And this is something you and I have in common. I actually think I would answer that question, not in a totally similar way, but in a similar way that, you know, on one hand, I also was pregnant a couple times. I had two miscarriages, so a slightly different fact pattern, but you may have had that too. Um, But I do think ultimately I did choose. I mean, whether you had an abortion or not, it does seem for somebody who's a really good manifester as you are, that if you had really wanted kids, you would have had kids. So not having kids in some ways is a choice. Do you believe that? Yeah. And and I do think I have kids. I have, they're called startups, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And um, who knew that I would become so 
uh, infatuated with and even addicted to the building of a business from scratch. I mean, I really put that at the seat of uh, the co-founder of the business I was part of, right? Because he taught me and he, he actually was my husband. So through that experience with him, both personally and then as a co-founder, I mean, he, t- he taught me to not be afraid, to think big, to that business could be built on the kitchen table and then grow to 50 and then be acquired for a lot more than that. And then on the personal side, you know, to be in partnership in both ways was really good for me, right? It gave me what I needed. Um, but, but the fact is, they, that was my child. Right. That was my child, and I've had many children after that. And it's very hard for me to let go of my children. <laughs> uh, sometimes, and in, in the way you articulated this at the beginning of this conversation, that you identify more as the roles you hold rather than a female who holds those roles. I feel similarly. I've talked a lot about that. But sometimes I feel almost unqualified to make some kinds of decisions. Now, I happen to run an organization that's focused on female-led companies, which is a choice, completely a choice, although it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes the fact that I don't have kids makes me feel like I miss the most important relatable fact between me and women generally who are in leadership. Like I can say a lot of things, judgments about what it looks like to be a female in leadership and choices that feel right for women in leadership. But I actually ultimately don't have what I, I don't know, maybe because I'm outside of it, maybe because I don't have a kid. I think, geez, oh Pete, this might be the single most important thing to happen to humans, women and men having a kid. And I don't have it. So can I fully understand where women are coming from? Have you ever had anything like that thought? Um, A few times when I've managed large organizations, which has not been that often, by the way, but when I have, or even in smaller organizations, when colleagues have had children or adopted children, and I, I, I think, okay, are you really compassionate enough for what that is, uh, what the struggle or stress or multitasking or whatever, are, are you really? Do you really get that, what that person is going through? And so there's sometimes I feel that way. Uh, but there have been lots of things I've nurtured. Right. So you know, not to be completely out of the box, but when you're nurturing others, be it your family and friends, I know it's different from birthing it, but I think that same issue is there. You need time to nurture that thing, right? right? That relationship, that project, that whatever that is. And I mean... We are fortunate, this gender called females, is fortunate to have a very strong nurturing gene, right? I'm not saying men don't have it, but we all know we have it more distinctly. And that has to work. It has to do its work. So sometimes that gene is applied to birthing another soul, and other times it's nurturing something else. Yeah, I think that's great perspective. 
You talked about your drive when you were young to be independent. Mm -hmm. What did that mean to you then? And what does it mean to you now? Yeah. So in the early days, I just wanted to go have an outfit and buy it on my own. (laughs) I wanted to get on the bus and go to the store and get an outfit to go wear to the birthday party. That's it. I didn't want to have to ask anyone for money for a ride there for their point of view on what I should buy. I just wanted to do that on my own. I was born bossy and independent, right? I just was, and maybe that's just my soul's deal, right? And it's a good thing I'm the oldest, so I could help my mom with all the things that needed to be done. Over the years, I wanted to, um, you know, just make my own decisions and, you know, have my own money and feel accountable and responsible for my own potential. And that, it really was that simple. And then, you know, I never was money motivated. I never thought about being wealthy. I never thought about being rich because of what was in my bank account. I just thought about not having to ask others for anything. That's very different. Totally. I just didn't want to have to ask permission. I didn't want to have to ask others, can I go? Can I do? Can I experience? Can I explore? Can I afford? I just wanted to do it on my own. And so it didn't equate to an amount of money or a status per se. It just it equated to a way of being. I want to eat when I want to eat. I want to live where I want to live. I want to wear what I want to wear, right? And I want to be able to take care of that financially, however that means. So you talked about an awareness that your strengths have a high side and a low side or a shadow side, if we want to get really hippie for a second. Yeah. This is a great one, independence. So how has independence been of service to you? And how is this independence streak, which sounded like it started long before you were allowed to get on the bus, how has it been a disservice? Oh, well, the, the way it's been of service would, you know, you could go on for a long time. You know, I have what I have and I am who I am and I've worked hard for it and I've created it and I'm proud of that. You know, I recognize myself for not just being a hard worker, but for thinking through what was required by me at all these different stages. And I mean that personally as well, because I've taken a lot of risk personally, not just risk in business. So all those risks have been under the umbrella of independence, and they have paid off, mostly. Um, and all have in some ways, so I can't even see the downside of, of, of that. But here's, the, here's how this independence theme or gene has not worked out so well. Let's be pragmatic first. At a board level, um, sometimes investors or just board members, they, they don't even know how to approach me. Because I sound more clear or clearer than I am sometimes, right? 
And so it's that emotionality and that definitiveness of spirit and content and strategy. And they're like, whoa. So let's don't even try to, let's don't even try to interject. And I do think that was, that happened a lot at Get Satisfaction, um, where I really didn't, I could have used more guidance than I allowed myself to be open to. At one level, I was open to it, but I would just come across as so clear and so strong. And as a as a manifester, that's how you do right. So, so I think even in my later years, and certainly in my earlier years, I demonstrated more competence and confidence than maybe I really had. Mm. It was almost like I was trying to trick myself. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sure. And I think if I could have left more vulnerability along the way in that independent gene, I probably could have gotten better faster, at least in the assignment that I was in. I think, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so, and then I play that out even today. I had an executive committee meeting uh, last week at Centrifuge. And um, I have really smart folks at the table, both entrepreneurs and global business executives, and some university presidents too. And I was thinking, you know, um, I just, I'm so excited of all the progress we've made, and I'm so clear about the things we need to do. I just wish, I want them to stop me more, right? right? And just say, gosh, but it's, I can be a little overwhelming with my independent gene. Now, that's the professional thing, right? And, yeah. you know, I, I recognize that. Yeah, and, sure. And so that, so what does that mean? Professionally, to slow down and to leave, leave more space, even in a board meeting, to make sure that executive, I'm just making it very pragmatic, the executive committee meeting at the end, you know, whenever that right, thing right, right. is. when Close all the, meeting, yeah. Yeah, close meeting. I couldn't even think of the name of it when those come together. To allow that to be, right? And not to rush through this. Mm. I think that's very important. Personally, though, is where it's the biggest problem is that in my desire to have a relationship after having so many wonderful relationships and having been married many times and all lovely marriages until they weren't lovely. But, you know, men enjoy vulnerable women and I don't come across so much that way, right? And so, you know, it's not just be softer or sweeter. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I just think... Everyone wants to be needed, and I need to show up in a way sometimes with women or, or, or with men. I wish I could show up and manifest that, huh. that I have needs that aren't getting met. Can you show up that way with women more easily? Uh, I think so. Huh. I think so. I think I do. I don't know. When I get with a man, it's almost like... I feel like I'm supposed to be their consultant or something. Do you know what I mean? Especially in a startup <laughs> world. I don't know. And I'm I wanna be less that way. I wanna let I wanna have business be less my centerpiece. <laughs> All right, so, I'm good at it. So, right? Wendy, I, I don't know if you read uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor's uh, 
I guess it's an autobiography, but she wrote something in there that was so I have it. I'm going to go get it now. It's just fantastic. It's, it's it. just great. It's incredibly vulnerable for a woman who I think probably has trouble with vulnerability. So here's your chance. Here's what she did. She grew up in a family that had very little physical touch and she had tons, she doesn't have children. She had tons and tons of grandkids and she was worried that she wasn't able to create the kind of binding relationships with those kids as well as other people in her life because physical touch was really challenging for her. She just wasn't natural. So she invited all of her grandchildren every time they saw her to run up to her and give her a giant hug. Mm. So it's almost like, you know, behavioral therapy. So she could get more imbued with this idea of physical affection and give it to them, which ultimately they of Mm -hmm. course need. Mm -hmm. So here we are, we're on this podcast. How can men and women, people of all kinds, what could they do with you that Mm. would help you develop more expertise and practice in this area? Um, well, the touching, the hugging thing sounds fine. I do that though. It's not a physical touch. Yeah. I think ask. I was just using that as an analogy. Yeah. I so. think ask um, how I am personally. And what if, what if you, you say. You know, because that's what I don't really go to as much. I don't mind talking about it as evidence in this podcast. But I don't, when I sit down with people, usually there's an objective and an agenda. I don't leave a lot of room for just interacting as people. But understand, so especially these people that you help mentor, like they're, they're scared of you, right? I mean, that's a, that, that man, I'm scared of you, but whatever, it's a power dynamic. You're on a tight schedule. You have 9 million stakeholders yeah. in your life. So yeah. you're generous and giving, their perception is, right. she's generously giving me this 20 minutes. I want to make really good use of it. So there's a power dynamic. I mean, you can't deny that uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of conversations that you have, mm-hmm. there is a power dynamic. I'm just wondering, I, I just wonder if there's some little thing they could do. So they ask you about you and you say, I'm fine. And you turn the conversation back to them, Yeah, which might happen. When you do that, what's the invitation you would give them just to push just a little bit harder? Mm, mm. Um, I think just a follow-up question. Okay. Like, like, of in the in the spirit of today, I mean, my language not theirs. Um, what are you excited about? Yeah, right. I mean, or what concerns you? Mm. Right. I think personal questions like that that would take my mind off the fact that I have that thirty minutes. Right. Although I want to be respectful for that thirty minutes too, because their time is valuable. But I think the but is just follow-up questions around, what are you excited about right now? Great. So, Wendy, what are you excited about right now? (laughs) Oh, what am I excited about? I'm excited about um, a new practice I have that is allowing me to, uh, just gives me more room to explore what's in my head and heart. And that practice I was working on this weekend. And, you know, I've done a lot of things to help me get centered and to think about new phases in my life. I think this phase of my life is the most exciting one, Um, not because of all that has come before it to inform this phase, Mm -hmm. but I just think I'm so much more aware. I think all of us are, frankly, on the planet, are just more aware of the dynamics that we're living in. 
And I am being very intentional and mindful about my practice to give me some room to think through that, all these dynamics, and what role I want to play at this stage. So um, that is pretty exciting to me, that I can make room and make time to do this particular practice, and then the benefit of that will be for me and my own growth, again, to reach my potential, as well as the reflection of that will help others. Mm. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about that. Thanks for asking. Huh. What's next for you? Oh, good question. So I've got, you know, in the bag, if you look at the ladder of work, because I look at work as a ladder, right? Up to down, to, down to, uh, top to top down, bottom up. I'm really excited about 2017 at Centrifuge. And the reason for that is we have kicked ass over the last two years, and in particular hosting Techstars FounderCon, which was a heavy lift um, in terms of the project, but the strategic value for both organizations is significant. So we, that, you know, we just got through with that, and so there's a lot of, of planning around how to leverage that excitement. The event, okay, whatever, right? The event was fantastic, but if there aren't strategic implications, then we aren't being the maximalists that we want to be. So 17 is great. It's very organized. We've got some new strategic themes. We have something called unassigned work because we're a small team, and it's, you know, we are a public-private partnerships. We have a fund and we have a nonprofit team. But we have a lot of unassigned work and it's fun to look at all the unassigned work and to think, are we going to keep it unassigned? Are we going to fold it in? So I'm excited about the work of 2017 at Centrifuge and Startup Sensi. That's number one. I'm excited about um, some uh, creative projects that I'm working on. And, you know, I love, as much as I've lived in three countries, five states, and this is my 34th address in Cincinnati, I do feel like home, it kind of circles me, mm. and I find it, and I kind of make it wherever I am. I am transitioning a little around that and trying to configure uh, more specific home spaces. Um, and so I'm working on a creative project around home, which is fun. That's number two, and that's a real creative project. It's not hard work. It's not like a milestone and a budget and all that. It's just nice. fun. So I've got that going on. And the third thing is I um, am going to do some board new board work. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sit on some awesome boards in Cincinnati, two very important nonprofit boards, the Symphony Board, which I've learned a lot from, and a healthcare board, which is fantastic, and then my own, and then I sit on another venture back board here in Boulder. Um, but I'm going to add one board that really is interesting and I'm excited about. I won't announce it now, but yeah. that's coming up, and it's pretty cool. And then I'm going to look for one um, public board because I can learn a lot by applying my most recent experience in big co-innovation and startup business building to a public board. So there's some board work. So here's the summary. Get excited for 2017 and Centrifuge. Work on a creative project. Take on one new board that will 
will be directly applicable to the work I've done in Cincinnati, and then maybe a public board if I get fortunate enough to have that. And then I am um, actively going to have love in my life mm. and doing the work required to attract a new relationship. Mm. That's what 2017 looks like. That sounds pretty good, Wendy. Thanks for sharing that. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Real Leaders. Thanks to Wendy Lee for really showing up for this podcast and sharing some really, really interesting aspects of her history and the lens through which she looks at what she does day to day. As always, Real Leaders is brought to you by Mergelane, the accelerator and investment fund for startups with at least one female in leadership. We have an accelerator class and multiple women's leadership camps teed up for 2017. Learn more at Mergelane.com. Real Leaders also is sponsored by Anton Collins Mitchell, a Colorado-based audit, tax, and general accounting firm. Find out how ACM can help you and your company with accounting needs at acmllp.com. Thanks for being with us this time, and we'll see you at the next episode of Real Leaders. Have comments, feedback, questions for me? You can always email me at sue at See you next time.